0: If you have a Bible, if you turn to Mark 7, Mark chapter 7. We're going to read verses 31 to 37, finish up chapter 7 tonight. And it says, again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis, and they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears, and he spit and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and saith unto him, Ephphatha, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much more a great deal they published it and were beyond measure astonished saying he has done all things well he makes both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak amen so now this account that we read just now is only found in the gospel of mark it's not found in either matthew or luke which is unusual because almost all of mark is found in matthew so there's 600 if you want to count them up 661 verses in mark And all but 55 of those 661 verses are found in Matthew. And 11 of those 55 verses that are in Mark but not in Matthew, 11 of those have to do with two healings that involve spitting. So for some reason, that is something Matthew apparently did not want to have in his gospel. (laughs) But it's in Mark's. And the funny thing is, I read a, a commentary on this, ran across this guy somehow, an African Christian minister is actually very good. And he said for people in his culture in Africa, reading or hearing about Jesus using his spit wouldn't have been disturbing, but encouraging to them. And I'll tell you why here in a little bit. So last week we looked at, just to give a little geographical context, we looked at the Syrophoenician woman and we commented that Jesus went from his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, deep into the Gentile territory, right up into pagan territory, 25 miles up the coast to the Mediterranean coast is where he went to Tyre. And that's where modern Lebanon is today. So we said he probably went there to get alone headed right into the land of Jezebel, though. That's where Tyre is. He went to get alone and probably instruct his disciples. But I also think there was another reason. And so Mark is telling us here what we're reading in beginning of verse 31, that he departed from the coast of Tyre. And it's telling us he also went through Sidon and then walked to the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee where Decapolis is located. So I don't know how many people can see this. And it's not really technically drawn perfectly to scale, but maybe this will just kind of help you visualize where he's gone. So he's here in Capernaum. He takes a route about like that, I guess. And he goes to Tyre. There's where he's got the Syro-Phoenician woman. This is the Mediterranean Sea is where he's at here. He's right on the coast. And then we know he goes up to Sidon. And then he makes a route where he comes down this way and probably went up that way and clear over this way and all the way down this way to about right here they're thinking and then eventually he's going to cross the sea of galilee again so that all totaled was a minimum of 120 miles he walked the significant thing is decapolis it's the area of 10 cities deca means 10 and all of these places he's gone are gentile areas largely gentile this part of the sea of galilee it's where modern jordan is and that's where lebanon would be up in there modern lebanon but everywhere he's gone he's in gentile territory and that is significant okay so he's going to heal that deaf man he's going to be right down there near gadara he's not actually on the the sea So what I want to do is, you know, I started off, I had three headings. I'll give you the three headings. I'm not going to make it to my third one, I can tell you right now, because we'll tie that into the next time, next week, Lord willing. But what I'd like to look at here is the urgent request, number one. We're going to look at that. And the second thing, we're going to look at the healing of this deaf man and the response to it. And the third thing is the spiritual significance. But we can talk about that next week. We got plenty to look at tonight. Always, I told Thomas, I said, you know, I look at these sections and I think I don't know what I'm going to say. What all there is to say there, and then I have too much. Once you start digging into it, it's the way it usually works. But this urgent request is the first thing I want to look at here. And look in verse 32, and it says, "And they bring unto him one that was deaf, and had an impediment in his speech, and they beseech him to put his hand upon him." So they bring him, and they beseech him. They, it says, now. It's built into the verb that it's a plural people verb. It's one word, but it's telling us there's a group of people. We don't know how many. It doesn't tell us how many. It's just a group of people. It's probably a group of friends, relatives, you know, could be concerned neighbors. But whoever they are, it says they are beseeching Jesus. Beseeching is a word it means to implore, implore. It's a strong request. It means to beg earnestly. It's more than just, you know, coming up and I'd like to have, you know, two hamburgers and french fries. It's more than that. Uh, They're begging him. They're beseeching him. This is something, it's a concern they have. They want him to take care of what they're bringing this man to them for. So they're concerned about the welfare of this man, desperately wanting to see him help, beseeching the Lord on his behalf. You know why they have to beseech him on his behalf? Because he can't say a word. That makes sense, doesn't it? He can't say a word. But what they're doing is what the centurion had to do for his sick servant that was lying there, racked with pain is what it says. Came to Jesus, it said, beseeching him. He couldn't do that. Did it on his behalf. It's the same word used about Jairus back in Mark 5 where it says, when he saw him, Jesus, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly. It's the same word that was used for his daughter. But the thing I wanted us to notice about this group of people that are earnestly begging Jesus to help them, these friends that have no name. They have no name. We don't know who this group is. No clue who they were. And this same expression about that they brought him to him is used of the group that brought the paralytic to Jesus over in Mark 2. We have no idea who those guys are, do we? It could have been more than four people involved in that, though. It doesn't say that it was just the four that carried him. It could have been others, too, that were helping out on that. The point is, we don't know who they were. And the other point is, it's not important that we know who they were. What is important is that God knows who they were, and he does. And so why is that important? The significant thing for us is that we as Christians have a servant's heart to help others and not to receive glory of men, but we do things, we've talked about this, from the heart to please our Heavenly Father. That is the way our attitude is supposed to be as Christians. And so we serve others and please our Father. How do we do that? By bringing them in prayer before Him. We beseech God or Jesus, if you will, by our earnest prayer on their behalf. Isn't that what we do? You've even heard some of that tonight. And so Jesus said when we go to our closet and shut the door and beseech him on behalf of others, he promises that God will see and he will hear and he will reward us for doing that. And so what would be the reward in this case? You're bringing a friend, someone at church, someone's going through a trial, the reward is you see them delivered, especially if it's a loved one that you're concerned about. That's the reward. And so not only individually, we've been talking about that, but it's true of corporate prayer and that's what we have going on here with this group of people that are bringing this deaf mute man to jesus corporate prayer combined effort it's a group effort they bring and they beseech it says and no one is singled out out of that group for praise most people probably could care less i would guess maybe they don't in this church about the super bowl but When you have a football game, a big game, any kind of game, any sporting event, well, let's just take a football game. I mean, they always single out the quarterback for winning the game. And the ones those quarterbacks they'll interview afterwards, if they are not just totally full of themselves and full of pride, I will say this for Tom Brady, he just immediately said it was a team effort. That's what somebody's going to do that's got any sense, right? That quarterback, I don't care how good you are. The best quarterbacks, if their line stinks, they will not have a good game. It's impossible. They have got to have time to throw that football. But these people that are bringing this man to Jesus, you know who they're like? They're like NFL linemen. I'm going to ask anybody in here name one lineman that plays for the Patriots who just won the Super Bowl. I'd almost say I'd give you 20 bucks, but I'm not gonna do that, because I probably end up having to choke up 20 bucks. So anyways, but I doubt if anybody can do that, right? So Tom Brady, though, you can't name any of those linemen, but Mr. good-looking stud quarterback and all that would be nothing without four nameless, faceless, oversized linemen. That's the way it is, it really is. And so we have this principle here of nameless, faceless people lifting up things and God getting the glory it's all through the Bible. But I have a couple places that illustrate that in the New Testament. And the first one I want to talk about is when Peter, we all know this account in Acts. Peter's held in prison in Acts 12 by Herod. And it says in there that intercession or prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And then later, when Peter was set free by the angel, we read, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Now listen, Peter is the New Testament rock star quarterback, isn't he? Because everybody knows who Peter is. Everybody practically in the world knows who Peter is. He's the first pope, right? Everybody knows that. (laughs) But the other thing is, God's got him balanced out a little bit, doesn't? I mean, we also know that Peter had many failings. The Bible doesn't hide that about him, does it? So he's famous, but he's famous not always for good stuff. But his name is prominent in history, in church history, in world history, and in the Bible. But did Peter himself have anything to boast of? Did he really? Because without the prayer of others, Peter would have been absolutely nothing. And I'll tell you, just think about that. So what did the Lord have to tell him? He says, you were going to deny me three times, Peter. He would have gone the way of Judas, except for one thing. The Lord was praying for him. The Lord's praying for him. And you take this case here where he's in prison. How in the world was he going to get himself out of that prison? He had absolutely nothing to do for that, because if the church hadn't prayed for him, he would not have been released. So it was through the faithful beseeching intercession of the church that his deliverance came. Many, it says, were gathered together praying. Now let me ask you, when that knock came on that door and they finally realized it really was him and he came in to that group, into the church, into the midst, what do you think their reaction was as a church? They had just been united together in concert, praying for their brother, their leader, someone they loved, someone they cared about. And here it is, he shows up. And God is supernaturally delivered through their intercession. Do you think they all just looked at each other and like, oh, I'm going to, and just left and walked home? No way. They were probably, this may sound over dramatic, but I don't know. I don't think so. Because they were looking at his head, surely being cut off. <laughs> I think they were hugging each other. I think they were probably crying. I mean, they're probably group hugging each other big time. I'm telling you, there was some rejoicing going on there, maybe some singing. I'm saying, I think that is what went on when it happened. And so there would have been a unity of the spirit, but it would have been a special bond created amongst those people. That's how things happen. I mean, it's just like we're talking with Brett. You know, when you have people that are praying for you in a church and everyone knows that happens and a testimony comes, that creates a bond that can't be formed any other way. And that's why I just love to have everybody here for our church prayer meeting, because that's what we're doing. We're praying for needs in the church, and it creates a sense of unity. It does. When I, I'll say it again, when I first moved here, everybody came to prayer meeting. It just creates that unity, that unity of the Spirit. We're praying for the same thing, and when we see God move on behalf of that, it's a thing of rejoicing in the body. No one's singled out when that happens. I mean, because you don't know, whether it your intercession or that God? Who knows? That's the way it goes. And the second place I'd like to talk about where a nameless church is praying is something you don't hear much of. But if you would turn, please, over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, we're going to look in verses 9 to 11. You know, in that first few verses there, Paul talked about the stoning that he suffered in Asia where he'd been left for dead. And he himself, he despaired even, it says, of his life. So look what it says there, beginning in verse 9. It says, But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and he is delivering, he doth deliver, and in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. And so he despaired, he said, even of his own life. And he said, God delivered me then, he's delivering me now, and I'm trusting he's going to deliver me in the future. But what we want to see here is, how does Paul say that God is going to deliver him in the future? How does he say that's going to happen? It's right there in verse 11. He says, you also, this is how it's going to happen, helping together, you guys uniting together by prayer for us. That for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. And that word helping together, it means joining in help, joining in serving. They are getting together with themselves, working together, praying for Paul. That's what he's saying. The church is uniting together to pray on his behalf, that he'd be delivered, working together beseeching God on behalf of Paul that he can receive this grace and deliverance. That's what it means. That word gift is the word for grace. And the grace in the gift is that he's delivered from death. He knows he didn't deserve that. We were talking last night too. Sometimes with your faith you are hanging by your fingernails holding on to a promise of God, aren't you? And you're thinking, man, I'm despairing. But these people he's saying, Paul says, I know you all are praying for me. I despaired of my life but the grace of God came and raised me up. He's not acting like he's some kind of spiritual giant. He knows he's dependent on the prayers of the saints. He's constantly asking the churches to pray for him and his ministry because he's headed the danger. He names all the things he gets through. So he knows it's the Lord, but he also knows God works through the intercession of the churches. None of us are spiritual giants. That's what a body is all about. We need the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ because faith is a supernatural, spiritual gift, so to speak. Peter couldn't have had faith unless Jesus prayed for him. And sometimes that's what we need. We're trusting God. We need our church. We need to be praying for each other that God will help that brother, encourage that brother, help him to hold on. And we need that. It's a very real thing in the Bible, isn't it? Helping together. And through that, Paul says there in verse 11, he says, you also helping together by prayer for us. That that gift can be bestowed. That gift of deliverance, he's saying, has come to me through your all's prayer. That's it. So like I said, we do need each other to pray for each other, right? The thing is, too, I want to see here in that verse 11, I, this is significant in it, to a degree, but it says there you also helping together by prayer for us. For the gift bestowed upon us, it says, by the means of many persons. You know what it's it's saying? The means of that gift being bestowed in the King James, it says, by many persons. Well, that word for persons is prosopon in the Greek. It is actually where we have the word face. Prosopon means face. And he's saying by many faces. Persons, I'm good with that, but I think there's a little more picturesque what he's trying to say. It's faces turned up to God in prayer is what I think the implication is there. That is how he's saying that gift is bestowed by many turning their faces to God in prayer. And those same people, when God answers, they'll be turning their faces to him in thanksgiving. I think that's what Paul's trying to get at there. You know, and here's the question. What do you think that did? when paul was delivered in the corinthian church is told it's through their prayers or any churches what do you think it did for that church this man by the name of paul barnett wrote this and i thought this was good he says to a divided community as the corinthians were they were having trouble paul's telling them you've got divisions there you've got problems and he said to a divided community as the corinthians were as well as a church somewhat alienated from their apostle because paul the whole second corinthians He's having to justify his ministry. He's like, you guys are following after these super apostles because they're more eloquent, they look better. He says, you're following after them, and they're leading you astray. And he's saying, wait a minute, don't be doing that. Let me tell you, this is where I'm coming from. Here's what I've suffered through. He said, I shouldn't have to do this. So he's got a church that they're not following his ministry. They're divided amongst themselves. And he went on to say this, Paul Barnett, Paul's expression of the Corinthians Working together with one another, for Paul, is an encouragement to unity and reconciliation. Moreover, it points to the effectiveness of prayer. I read across that today, I thought, man, that's really good. And that's what happens when people pray together. Take time. And if you groups, you pray together, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. God will bless that, right? And that's my first point. Now, my second point here is, I want to look at, back to Mark, I want to look at the healing that takes place and the response. And so Mark describes the man that has brought to Jesus as deaf. That means he is totally unable to hear. He can't hear anything. Now, it doesn't say that he's unable to talk, but that he's got a speech impediment is what it says. So he couldn't speak clearly. You know, he could probably make noises. So I'm looking at this. I'm thinking, Greg and I, back in the day, not too far up from my house, they had a school for the deaf, and our grade school basketball team. I guess we did it every year, didn't we? I think it was like a tradition. They would have us come over there, and you know, they're 14, 15, or whatever. That's how old we were, and we would play a basketball game with them. And so we'd always play at their place. I don't mean anything by this at all, but. I'm just saying they couldn't hear like this man. They could make noises, but they couldn't hear their noises. And I'm saying, and people in the stands would be the same. And you'd be going up for a layup and they would yell at you. They didn't know what it sounded like. I mean, it would like make the hair stand up on your back. I'm just saying it was just kind of disconcerting. So I'm saying that's kind of what I picture here is when you can't hear yourself talk, you know, you get loud. You know, all you have to think about is the guy on the airplane that's got his earbuds in way too loud and he's singing. He's like, man, if you knew what you sounded like, you'd quit right away because you got a whole plane staring at you, right? Or anybody walking along the mall or wherever. That's what's going on. And so they bring him, they bring this man, verse 32, to Jesus and they ask him to just simply lay his hands on him. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? That's typically what he'll do. And what he does is highly unusual. What do we read there? It says, it brought him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech and they besought him to put his hand upon him. And then verse 33, it says... He took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ears and spit and touched his tongue, looking up to heaven, he sighed and saith unto him, "Ephphatha," that is, be opened. So he takes the man by the hand. That's the impression. That's the Greek gives you that impression. And he's just leading that man gently away from the crowd, leading him away, taking him off by himself. So he's showing that man he's treating him tenderly and he's showing he has care for him as an individual. That's what I see you get out of that right there. And then what Jesus does next seems odd and I would say even gross. He sticks his fingers in his ears and then it says he spits on his fingers. I would imagine his fingers and touches the man's tongue. Looks up to heaven and then he sighs. Looks up to heaven and sighs and then he speaks. Why did he do those things? Why would you think he did all that? Well, let me ask you a question. How would you communicate with a deaf person? So Lisa and I occasionally go back to where I went to school. We'll go to the Southern Chapel. And when the guy's up there preaching, they got a little section up near the front. And I guess it's deaf students. I don't know who it is, but it's deaf people. And they have somebody right there that's doing all the sign language for the deaf people as the message is being preached so they can hear it. So they wouldn't understand a thing without that sign language. And I think that is what Jesus is doing here for this man. In a sense, you could say he's speaking to him in sign language, in language he could understand. So when Jesus stuck his fingers in that man's ear, that is not what brought hearing into his ears. And when he spit on his fingers and touched the man's tongue, that is not what made his tongue loosed. That's not what did it. They were symbols Jesus is showing him this is what I'm about to do. And he's encouraging his faith, sticking his fingers in those deaf ears. He's saying they're going to be opened up. Touching his tongue is a symbolic thing, anointing that with his spit. So there's no magical power in Jesus's spit. You know, like I was saying, in our Western culture, we view spit and spitting as crude. Even the word is kind of crude, isn't it? It's kind of the way we react to that, because we look at it like it's a way of spreading disease. We got a negative view. You see somebody spitting on the sidewalk. I mean, it's kind of like, that's nasty. Probably nasty in any culture. But like I was saying, in that culture, like in Africa, what they would have there is their healers would spit in the medicine and mix it in and give it to the people. And they would look at that like that was a good thing. That was going to help their healing along. Or... I read about this in Taruba, which is the southwest area of Nigeria, where they've got a traditional cultural practice. So before a newly married daughter, the last time she's gonna leave the house on her wedding day, the dad will spit on her hands, lightly spit on her hands, and she rubs them on her face. That's the way his prayer is a blessing to her. Now that doesn't make sense to us, but they do that three times, and it makes perfect sense to them. And my girls don't have to worry, I'm not gonna be doing that, so. But to us, that sounds gross, doesn't it? We read about Jesus, and so you just take the time to think about what you're reading there, and we read about him spitting on his fingers and touching that guy's tongue, and we're thinking, man, that just sounds kind of crude, doesn't it? But I'll be telling you, I've got to thinking about that. I'll tell you what, if Jesus wanted to spit on me anywhere I needed healing, he could spit on me, and I wouldn't care what else. You know, that'd be fine with me, right? It'd be like Peter, you know, just not my head only, my whole body. You know? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But anyways, the thing is, though, the point I'm trying to make is somebody from Africa reading this account, they wouldn't have had any problem. They could have related in a way to what Jesus did that we wouldn't. That they would have understood that that spittle, that what he's doing there, it's symbolic, just like that father with the daughter. It's just symbolic. Symbolize that healing power, telling that man his healing power is coming from me, and it will be on you, coming to you. So, He's looking up to heaven. Why is he doing that for that man? He's showing that man that this healing power, who's in heaven? Hey, everybody, you look up, that's where God's at, even though we know he's not really up. But that's what it is. It's symbolic, and this man's seeing that, and he's sighing. It's showing his compassion. He can see, you, know, you ever watch somebody sigh? Take that deep sigh, and that's what he's seeing there happen, that compassion that's coming. And I'm going to tell you, the word that he spoke, Ethphatha. You try saying that three times real fast. So I'm saying the guy probably read lips and there's a lot of lips to read when you say that, I mean, I had to practice that a few times to be able to do it. Aramaic word that means be opened. A simple command. In verse 34, it says, Looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed and said unto him, Ephathah. That is, be opened. And so I'm saying it wasn't putting his fingers in his ear. It wasn't to spit on his tongue. What healed this man was what? It's the word that was spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. Be opened. Yeah, that's what healed him. Because that's when it says immediately. His ears were working and his tongue was loose. That's what happened. He sent his word and healed them. Speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. And he gives this man a word of healing, deliverance, and restoration. This man's ears were perfectly restored. Perfectly restored by a word from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, look there in verse 35, and straightway it says his ears were opened after Jesus said, Epphatha. Verse 35, his ears were opened and the string, it says, of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain. A string of his tongue was loose. And the Greek there is very vivid because the word for string. I mean, somebody tell me what string of his tongue means. I'm saying you have no idea. It's a Greek word. desmas, And it means a chain or a fetter like you would put on a prisoner. That's what it's saying there. So in Acts 16, when the earthquake came because of Paul and Silas and their singing, it says the prisoners' chains fell off. It's the same word, desmos. It means chains or fetters. In Luke 13, we just talked about this. When Jesus said to that woman, Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond? It's the same word, desmos. Shouldn't she be loosed from this chain? He's saying... The devil has got this woman chained. She can't do anything. It's a chain. And it's the same expression that's used here with this man. And it says the string of his tongue was loosed. It's the same thing that was said to that woman. She was loosed, Jesus said. Exact same word, exact same expression. It's the devil has got this man's tongue bound that he can't talk. And that's what's happening there. Jesus came to loose it. There's a man that used to be he was on TV and I think early on I watched a lot of his videos. This is many years ago. AA a. Allen, a lot of people have heard about him. His end wasn't good. You know, he died, he was a mess. But early on in his ministry, I believe he was following the Lord and the Lord has really used him. I've sat there one weekend or maybe for a week and I watched Paul Novin had videos of him. I mean, I don't know how many I watched. And I watched from the beginning of his ministry all the way through. Well, by the end, he's not the same person. He's doing weird things. It's all strange. But at the beginning of his ministry, I mean, you see things. I'm thinking, this is God working through him. And on one of those videos, he goes down to Indonesia. He's down in Indonesia, and they show there where they brought him several children and adults that were deaf. And this is what he did. What we read right here. He put his fingers in their ears and they couldn't hear a thing. I mean, it wasn't some show. It wasn't some put on. And they couldn't hear a thing. He put his fingers in their ear and I don't remember exactly what he said. Pulled his fingers out and be healed in Jesus' name. Whatever he said, be loosed. Might have said that. I think some of them couldn't speak. It happened. And he would test them. And their parents would be right there. He said, can this child hear? I can't hear a thing. I'm saying It works. <laughs> I have no doubt. I've seen it happen. And that's what the coming of the kingdom of God is all about. It is loosing God's people from the chains of Satan's power. And that's what we're seeing here physically and spiritually. That's what's going on. Full restoration. That's what this man needed, didn't he? His ears don't work. His tongue is bound. He needs to be restored. God didn't create him like that. Didn't want him to be that way. And if the kingdom of God comes, that's what it's all about. The Lord Jesus Christ to restore someone that was not made to be that way. And that's what the power of God has come to do. And so what we need to say, when Jesus took on flesh and began his ministry, the kingdom of God, right then and there, up to today and beyond, the kingdom of God became present, present then, And available to God's people. And it has not stopped. It hasn't stopped. Because the kingdom of God hasn't gone away, has it? And it's for everyone that's made Him Lord of their life. So in chapter one, when you read that, Mark starts off, he says, this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And in that same chapter one in verses 14 and 15, he says that Jesus began preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled. He's saying it's starting right now with me. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying the time is fulfilled. It's starting now. The kingdom of God is at hand in me. I'm here. He's not saying the kingdom of God is two blocks down in Jerusalem somewhere that you can go find it like that. He's saying the kingdom of God is here. He's not saying there's some location you can find where there's a throne and all that. You find it. You look hard enough. No, he's saying it's here in me. He's the kingdom of God. And it's starting right then in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his reign in the lives and hearts of people. And he's saying for those people, his power is demonstrated. He said in Matthew 12, he says, if I, which he did, if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, which he was doing, he said, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. That's what he said. I mean, this should help our faith. It really should. The miracle of that deaf and mute man being healed, it is what? It is proof. And we'll see it clearly. It is proof that the kingdom of God has come. And so you're in Mark, turn back Matthew's account. He doesn't have about the deaf and mute man, but he talks about this period. He's following Mark with what's going on here. And so when you turn to Matthew 15, you can see that. So Matthew, instead of singling out one person like Mark did with the deaf and mute man, he gives a summary of what happened in Jesus' ministry. So he had ended about the Syrophoenician woman like Mark in verse 28, but if you look in verse 29 of Matthew 15, it says, And then Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee, which is where we're at, Decapolis, and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, and blind and dumb and maimed and many others and cast them down at Jesus's feet. And he healed them insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk and the blind to see. And we know that they are Gentiles because it says they glorified the God of Israel. He wasn't native to them. But they see these things and it says they glorified because the kingdom of God is restoration has taken place even amongst the Gentiles is what's happening here. That's what's happening here. Look at that list. The lame, the blind, the dumb and the maimed. The maimed, the maimed is a limb of a person on a human body that is abnormal or incapable of being used. And it says he restored the maimed. That's right. Praise God, that's what he did. He didn't leave any of those people that were brought to him in that condition. Not one of them. And he is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, you know, the King James, the way it talks about it there, it sounds a little rough because it says, in verse 30, that they brought the lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and it says they cast them down at Jesus' feet. I mean, that makes it sound like, here, you brought this sick person or somebody that can hardly walk or has got to, and you just throw them down. That's kind of the impression you have, isn't it? You know, that word, it's a word that can mean to cast out. I think they brought those people, and they just laid them down at his feet, and there they are, and I think he's looking at them, and I could, from what we've read, his heart is going out to these people. These people that are suffering, and if they can't walk, they have limbs that don't work, they can't see, and He's healing every one of them as they're being brought to Him because that's why He came. The kingdom of God is here. that's why I'm here. That's the good news. He said He preached the good news of the kingdom of God to bring that restoration. That's what it's all about. Laid them down at His feet. He healed them. And like I said, he hasn't changed and his power hasn't diminished. It hasn't diminished one iota. And like I said, his kingdom came over 2,000 years ago and it has not ceased to exist. It came nigh with the Lord Jesus Christ and has never gone away. And it says the gifts are still in the church. They are still in the church. Faith. Miracles and healing—it's still in my Bible. It still is, right? So you know what the church is without having to get into this. The church—just take my word for it. We prove it one day in Philippians. The church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. It is. It's like an embassy, an outpost, an outreach, and so that's why everything is here. We're the kingdom of God—that outreach of it. We're not the complete kingdom of God, but we're an outpost of it here. And so the kingdom should be manifested in our midst when we get together. That's what the Bible teaches. And so we have to just keep pressing in until we see that power manifested. Keep bringing our brothers and sisters that have great needs, and we have some of them here. We have some of them here. Keep bringing them to Jesus and laying them at his feet. How do you do that? How do we bring people to the feet of Jesus? Through our prayers, don't we? That's how we do it, beseeching him on their behalf. That's what we're seeing here, that's what it's all about. So back to Mark seven, look at verse 32, it says this. And they brought unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech and they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And it says he had an impediment in his speech. That is one word, impediment in his speech, it's one Greek word, Magilalan. Mogilalan. it's a hard one to say and it's a rare word it's the only place in the New Testament that that word is used Mogilalan. and there's only one place in the Old Testament that it's used and that is highly significant for us. So there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint and this word appears one place in the Septuagint. If you would turn there it's Isaiah 35 turn to Isaiah 35 please So Isaiah 35 is a messianic prophecy. It's predicting the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of the reign of the Messiah. And it comes after God has just declared his judgments on Edom, Egypt, Tyre, which is one of the areas we're talking about, Israel and Jerusalem. But what we have happening here, there's a major shift in Isaiah's prophecy beginning at verse Thirty-five. He's looking forward to the coming reign and restoration of the Messiah, and so blessing is now no more judgment. But starting in verse thirty-five, Tyre that had been judged is now gonna be blessed. That's where the Syrophoenician woman is. That's right up here, Lebanon. That's what we're talking about. And so, look in verse thirty-five. It says, "The wilderness and the solitary place will no longer be that. It shall be glad for them, and the desert." shall rejoice and blossom as the rose it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing here it's talking about that area Tyre and Sidon the glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it the excellency of Carmel and Sharon they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God going to change from a desert place it's saying to a place of blessing and abundance and i'm saying that's what he did he's going to visit them and he's visiting them now it's foreshadowing what's going to happen that jesus went to tyre and sidon that's what's going on there and then look at verses three to six he says strengthen ye then the weak hands confirm the feeble knees say to them that are of a fearful heart be strong Fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense, He will come and save you. We used to sing that song. Verse five. And what will happen when that happens when He comes and saves you? Verse five, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in harp, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. And so where it says there in verse six, the tongue of the dumb, that is the same word used for speech impediment. It's the exact same word. Mogilalan. That's what it is. That is what takes place there. So he's saying when the Messiah comes, those that are of a fearful heart. Those that are having struggles, those that are the main, the lame, all of those people that need restoration. He says, don't fear anymore. He's going to come with a vengeance and he will save you. And that's a promise. He's saying when the king comes, that's what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. And this right here, this is what Mark is referring to and Matthew's referring to. The Messiah comes, this is the deliverance and the restoration that will come. There'll be restoration, and when that restoration comes and the tongues are loosed, when that man with the speech impediment is freed from the devil, he says he will sing. You'll hear singing, and we will hear singing in here one day. Yeah, we will. Look in verse 10. We sing this song. This whole chapter is great. Look in verse 10, and the ransomed of the Lord, they'll return. And they'll come to Zion, how, with songs, and everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. And what's going to flee away? Sorrow and sighing. Because all of those things that they had to live with, they couldn't walk, they couldn't see, they couldn't hear, they couldn't speak. He's saying it'll all be gone. Because God has come and brought restoration. And that's what's going to happen here. Imagine how it'll be in our church. When Jack's walking, little Jack's walking, Brett's doing chin-ups with both arms, and I could go on. God restores all the people in our body that are trusting Him. He will do that. And you say, ah, that's just preacher talk. It is easy to say, but I really believe it. I really do. I'm not going to put my hand on a Bible and swear, but I do believe it. I want to read this to you, Now I'm just telling you, I want to read what I'm reading to you. I had not read this before I preached Sunday's message but I've got this book by this man, R. Allen Street. I got a hold of this book and it actually surprised me because this man, to where he's at and where he teaches at, I'm thinking, I didn't know you guys believed anything like this. This got to be getting you in trouble with other professors. And the name of this book is Heaven on Earth, Experiencing the Kingdom of God in the Here and Now. Very good book. Now there's a few things in there I would caution about, but overall it is really good. And so he has a chapter called The Kingdom Focused Church. And he says this. This is part of this chapter I want to read to you briefly here. He says, what if we invite and even expect God to manifest himself in our meetings and nothing happens? Or what if we pray for a healing or ask God to break the bondage of drug addiction and heaven is silent? What then? What do you do then? Don't we sometimes feel that way? Well, he goes on to say, if you believe in God... You believe in miracles because he says otherwise it's what's known as an oxymoron. That if you believe in God, you have to believe in miracles. They go hand in hand is what he's trying to say. He says, yet God is not a genie in a bottle who serves at our beck and call. He is the king whom we worship. We gather, pray and invite him to manifest himself because this is what he instructs us to do. The scriptures attest to his desire to live and move among his people. Do we believe that? That is what it says. And it says, now as he has throughout history. He he wants to do that now as he has throughout history. In fact, he went on to write, he desires to do so more now than before he gave us his end time spirit. He went on to say, when we do not sense his presence, and our prayers are not answered I believe he meant manifested we should continue to engage in all the other kingdom related ministries he says this we should also persist in asking God to demonstrate his power in our midst and he says he will answer in due season (laughs) we've got to persist and not give up isn't that what we said Luke 18 that man ought always to pray and not to faint not to give up He went on to say there's no special formula or recipe can guarantee a healing or a miracle. But some components are present whenever the supernatural occurs in the Old Testament or New Testament times. I'm just going to tell you, he gave three things. I'm going to give you two of them, the first two. And I didn't read this before Sunday. But you know what he said? Number one, the first is faith. We must believe God can and will heal or intervene on our behalf. Don't we? It's got to start with that. We were having prayer meeting last night. Jake prays uh, Hebrews 11, 6. We have to come before him, and we have to come before him when we're interceding in faith, believing that he will reward us. Without that kind of faith that says it's impossible to please God, we have to believe that when we come to him and we earnestly seek him, that he will reward us. And here was the second thing. What do you think it is? Yeah. Yeah. That's what he said. I didn't write it. I didn't know it was there. I just happened to pick that book up today. The second he says, we must be obedient. Obedience is a key to healing as well as other blessings under the old covenant. And it is just as relevant under the new covenant. And he went on to quote Isaiah 15, 26. If you will diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you. Which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. He's pledged himself to do that. And I believe what Mr. Street said, I believe that what he says is right, that God desires to live and move among his people now as he has throughout history. And he'll answer in due season if we pray and faint not. Back to Mark 7. Looking at the last few verses here, 36 and 37, and that man spake plain, and it says in verse 36, Jesus charged them that they should tell no man, but the more he charged them so much, the more a great deal they published it. In verse 37, they were beyond measure astonished, saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. So he tells those people, he charges them. He said, I don't want you telling anybody about what happened here. And it says, the more he said that to them, the more they went around spreading it. (laughs) The more they proclaimed it is what the word is. Published, it means it's our word for preaching. They went around spreading it everywhere. Ask yourself, why did he ask them to be quiet about it? Why would he do that? You know why? Because he didn't want to be known as I'm just his miracle blessing savior. He hadn't been to the cross yet. They didn't have the full message. So the message is he does want to restore. He does want to bless. He will do all of those things. But what is the other part of the message that they didn't have yet to preach when they shared? And that is he hadn't been to the cross and we need to go to the cross. How often? Daily. Isn't that what he says? Part of the message that we preach when we preach the gospel is it's just not all love, joy, peace and blessings. You're not preaching the gospel if you say that. You say, no, you need to forsake all. You need to be willing to take up your cross daily and follow Him, or you cannot be His disciple. That has got to be our message. And so that's why he's saying he doesn't want it being spread. He does that several times in the Gospel of Mark. But look at verse 37. It says there that the people were astonished beyond measure, and Mark literally made up a word. That word doesn't exist anywhere else in the New Testament or in any Greek literature. In other words, he had to make up a word to say... They just could not get over it. They could not believe it. It's a literally made up word in a sense. Coined a word. Amazed at the wonders that he did and they couldn't keep silence about it. And they say, he has done all things well. That's an echo of what? That's an echo of Genesis 131. When God saw that he had made, it was very good. It was very good. He's done all things well. And who was the agent that spoke that word? In creation, It was the Lord Jesus Christ. The triune God was there in creation. And they went on to say he makes both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. That's that reference again back to Isaiah 35. He's done all things well. He's restored the dumb and the deaf. And they're like, this is unbelievable what we're seeing here happen. But it is happening. And it can happen today. It really can. And so this is God's way of saying I've made a pledge through what we're reading here in these last verse of Mark. I've made a pledge that my creation that was very good when I made it and an enemy came in here and marred it and destroyed it and has ruined it and has made my creation miserable. He's saying, I pledge that it will be restored and delivered from the oppression of the devil. That's what he's saying. And it's going to begin and it has begun with the appearance of the Messiah. He has come. It's there. It's available to us, isn't it? When Jesus said that in Luke 4, God has anointed me and said all of those things, and He said, today this Scripture has been fulfilled. The year of Jubilee, the year of restoration has come. It's just a matter of us pressing in and seeking God and trusting Him and get our lives obedient. And we'll see it happen. I'm telling you, we will. We will see it happen. Don't have to wait for the millennium, do we? That's what we're hearing here. That's what God's trying to say is we can experience it now. We are citizens of his kingdom now and can enjoy those benefits now. Amen. I'm just saying we just need to press in corporately in prayer, individually in prayer, determine that we are going to trust God and trust Him only and that we're going to obey what He's given us to do. We're going to be faithful people to whatever He's given us to do and we'll find out what the power of God looks like. We will. Amen? That's my message for tonight. Praise God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And Father, I just ask, Lord, you'll burn it in our hearts, Lord, that we can see your power manifested in our midst. And I ask, Lord, also, you'll press upon us in a hard way to get our lives straight with you, Lord, in these end times. We need to do that, that we'll be obedient people and we can look to you. We'll experience your presence, your power, your deliverance and your full restoration, Lord. And that we will have tongues that sing, that sing with joy. The redeemed of the Lord shall go forth with singing, And everlasting joy will be upon our heads. And I thank you, Lord, that you will do that for us here at this church. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.